for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Daniel, and I am the youth pastor here at St. Mary's. It's a joy and privilege to be able to preach to you all this morning. Uh, and for those of you who are online, welcome as well. Uh, today we'll be going into 2 Samuel 18, and as you can see, it's not working. So if you can, have a Bible, your phone. Uh, there's actually a Bible on the way in. It's under the cupboards, so you can grab one as well, or you can follow along on your service order. Uh, allow me to pray as we prepare our hearts to listen to God's Word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, for your help, that by your Spirit you enable us to understand your Word and to see uh, the truths uh, that you want us to hear this morning as well. Uh, Lord, help me to preach as well, uh, so I may preach it clearly and well. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the most crucial dilemmas that appears in the Bible, uh, in, in fact, in all of our lives as well, is justice on one end and mercy on the other. And this tension is like pulling a rubber band. Right? If you pull the rubber band too hard on one end, it will fly over uh, to the other side and one side will completely dominate the other. And we see this tension being played out across our lives all the time. So for example, if you have children and they have done something wrong, uh, how do I discipline them? I mean, I still love my son, I still love my daughter, but they did something wrong. How do I then discipline them? Or if someone offended you or has wronged you, has done evil to you, uh, how do I forgive them? I mean, isn't that justice that's supposed to be given to those who have done evil against me? Or what about love? Right? Isn't it all about love? Uh, especially what's going around in the world today. Isn't what the world needs to be a better place just more love? Uh, we hear things such as love wins. Right? Uh, if Christ, if Jesus is a loving God and a loving Savior, uh, how can He punish people for their sins? How can He punish people in hell, right? Now, these are some of the questions uh, that we have to answer regarding this tension between justice and mercy. And we see this tension being played out so far in our story in 2 Samuel uh, as well. We see this tension being played out in Absalom and his father, David. So on one hand, David loves his son very much. He loves Absalom very much. And as God has showed David himself mercy, David now wants to show his son, Absalom, mercy as well. On the other hand, as we all know, as we've seen last week, Absalom is about, or it has already committed treason against his kingdom and against the throne. And as David, as king, David has to administer justice towards the very son that he loves. So we see this tension. So how should David respond? How will David respond? So if you weren't here last week, in 2 Samuel 17, uh, we're about to head into war. Right? We see Absalom, he had two different councils, the council of Hushai, the council of Ahitobel. Uh, he took the council of Hushai, and then uh, David had spies uh, in there, and David received the news, so David proceeded to run across uh, the Jordan to a place called Mahanaim. Right? And then David, uh, David rather, Absalom and his army led by Amasa followed shortly after. And the war is about to begin. The battle lines are drawn. And David, which is our main focus today, has to make a decision very quickly on how he is going to respond 
to the war that is about to happen. And then now, we come into 2 Samuel 18. So look with me to the text, wherever your Bibles are, and we'll dive into the story together. So in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 18, we see David, the king, the leader of his army, gathering his forces by the thousands and by the hundreds. And he sets three generals over them. Now we see in the text, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai as leaders over their army. And David himself, very interestingly, at the end of verse 2, tells his people, I myself also will go out with you into battle. Now this is very significant because if we remember, all this sin and all this downfall in his family actually began all the way back in 2 Samuel 11. Remember, David did not go to war. But now he wants to go to battle for himself. By verse 3, we see David being advised by his generals to not go into battle. They tell David essentially, David, you are worth 10,000 more than us. You are so precious. The enemy's objective is to kill you. And if we lose you, King David, we lose the war completely. And funny enough, this is actually the opposite advice that uh, Hushai gave to Absalom, which I told Absalom in 2 Samuel 17, 11, Hey, you, Absalom, you yourself go into battle. So very different kinds of advice that was given. So David listened to his generals and he commanded and assisted the war from their home base. Right, we see in verse 4, he watches his army march out the gates of Mahanaim and the battle is about to begin. Yet before that, David has one final command that he wants his generals and in fact all of the army to know. And David says this in verse 5. He says, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now I've never been into war before, uh, but I can imagine if you are one of the generals or if you're one of the soldiers in the army, uh, listening to that command from your chief, you would have mixed feelings. Like, wait a minute, we're going to war, we're about to go into a vicious battle, and you're telling me not to destroy the big boss. You're telling me not to destroy the enemy uh, that we're about to fight. So we see this tension, right, that's being played out in the heart of David. right? In this instance, it was, of course, King David giving the orders to his people. But in reality, actually, it's the father's heart uh, that was speaking. The king ought to exercise justice, but the father, David, wanted to show mercy. This tension is very real for David. So after thing is given, verse 6, the war begins. And we're told that the war happens in the forest of Ephraim. It's probably because that you know, David's army is smaller and Absalom's army is way bigger. And in this forest, uh, it will be advantageous for the small army versus the big army. Because verse 8, it tells us uh, why is it advantageous? Because it, it tells us that the forest devoured more people than the sword. Uh, this probably refers to there are pit holes in the, in the forest, there are branches, there are oaks, there are things sharp enough to destroy uh, the enemy. It's easy to maneuver for a smaller, uh, and, uh, for a smaller army rather. And it helped David's army achieve victory at the end. But very quickly, right, we're not going to focus on the war. You probably could have written a, whole, written a whole chapter on the war itself. But 
the narrator very quickly, after three verses, jumps straight back into the main part of the story, which we will see is Absalom's death. And one example of how the forest devoured uh, the people is in verse 9. Uh, we see Absalom riding on his mule, and when he ran past a big old tree, his head got caught. Uh, and it's caught, uh, the, the, the passage describes it as being suspended between heaven and earth while his mule ran away. So Absalom was hanging there in sense, he was in no man's land, he was helpless. But verse 10 shows us a person who actually saw all this happening but did not do anything about it. But he went and told Joab, one of the generals of the army. Now if you've been following the story, Joab is a very interesting character to say the least. Uh, we can see his response in verse 11. Right? He says, what? You saw him? Why you don't kill him? What are you doing? I would have given you money. I would have given you a belt if you have killed him, says Joab. But this man, whoever it is in verse 10, remembered the words of David. He remembered David saying, deal gently for my sake. And he did not do it. How could he disobey his king's orders? But the man also very cleverly, he knew that if he were to kill Absalom, let's say, Joab wouldn't have defended him anyway. So this Joab guy, very interesting. And we'll see his character continue to develop. And he's just a very, very pragmatic person. Joab is by all means necessary for political gain, for the good of the kingdom, for the victory of the battle, whatever it takes, kill the enemy. And he did that in verse 14, taking three javelins, throwing it and killing Absalom. Even 10 other of his young men got together and did uh, kill Absalom as well. So Absalom is dead. <coughs> Joab and his army, victory is won. This is good news for the kingdom, right? I mean, yes, of course it is. But for David, it is not good news at all. So verse 16, the trumpet is sounded. Joab calls off the wall. Okay, stop chasing, come back, retreat. And they bury Absalom in a jungle. Now before we find out how David reacts to all of this, I just want to pause here in verse 17 and verse 18. And I reckon the writer, the author of 2 Samuel wants us to see something. He wants the, the, the first audience to see something. He wants all of us here to see something. And he wants us to see the futility of Absalom's life. The author wants us to see what happens when we choose to go our own way rather than submit to God's way. So allow me, allow me to explain. Verse 17 Right, it's described that Absalom was buried and on his grave were piled up great heaps of stones. And the first audience hearing that will have immediately probably recalled the stories in Joshua chapter 7 and Joshua chapter 8, the story of Ahan and the story of the king of Ai. What happened to them? Well, they disobeyed God. And as well, on their grave were great piles of heaps of stones. Like Absalom, these people obeyed, disobeyed God, rather. And this piling up of great heaps of stones was to show anyone who would walk past that great heaps of stones, and when they see that stone, they would see an enemy of God. And that, they would have seen what will happen to them, or what will happen to you, if you disobey God. 
That's verse 17. And very interestingly in verse 18, the author includes a little end credit scene, so to speak, a little excerpt of Absalom's life. And how Absalom actually set up a monument or a pillar to remember himself. The purpose of that monument is so that Absalom's name will be great. And the author of 2 Samuel writes there that the monument still exists until today. For the first audience of 2 Samuel, that when they know, they see this monument and they are reminded of the past. So I just I think the author wants us to see something here and for us to reflect upon it. That this same person who built a monument and built a pillar to remember his own name and his great achievements and his great conquests is the same person who was buried and piled up great heaps of stones and was deemed an enemy of God. Friends, brothers and sisters, what legacy are you building? Is it a legacy of self my way or the highway, or is it a legacy of obedience to God? Friends, you can see that you can spend a lifetime doing things your own way and disregarding the ways of God. And sure, people around you might remember your deeds and the monuments, so to speak, that you have built in your life. But heed this, in the eyes of God, like Absalom, that you are actually just piling heaps of stones upon your own grave. So may I urge us this morning in our various walks of life that we leave a legacy of obedience to Christ. Right? A legacy of a mother or a wife who submits and serves her husband and serves her family well. A legacy of a father or a husband that doesn't over-prioritize work but prioritizes spiritually leading the family and loving them. A legacy of a man who is generous with his finance to give to the works of the kingdom of God, to give to people who need it. A legacy of an elderly person who may not be able to move about as much, but are praying for God's work to be done in various places in this world, in St. Mary's, in various ministries in the world. So may I urge us this morning to be thinking about your own life and what legacy you're leaving behind. And as well, uh, may we heed the warning of the life of Absalom and what happens when we disregard and disobey God uh, as well. Well, let's look back at the passage. Back to how David responds to all this. So there are two messengers in the story. Uh, names are Ahimas, he was previously a spy uh, for David, and uh, Cushite. So there's two messengers. So in verse 19, Ahimas, this guy, very excited. He wanted to deliver the good news of the victory of the war to David himself. Right? But Joab very smartly says, no, 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 bro, you better not do that. Um, David is devastated if you tell him, this will be devastated if you tell him that his son has died. So Joab advises him not to. Instead, Joab sends the Cushite, the second messenger, uh, off to tell David the news instead. But this Ahimas, for whatever reason, he was very insistent. He wanted to tell David uh, the story or the news. So Joab could not stop him. 
And then Ahimaaz started running and run he went. He even outran the Cushite all the way to David. Ahimaaz met David first. He actually outran the Cushite. And apparently, very funny that his running style was so obvious that the people from afar could recognize that this is Ahimaaz coming. And there is good news from this messenger. So when Ahimaaz reaches David, he says, All is well, or Shalom, uh, Ahimaaz says to David. And he tells David the news of the victory of the battle. But I want you to pay attention. David wasn't very interested in knowing the outcome of the battle. He didn't really mind it. But what was he focused on? David was focused on one and one thing only. How is Absalom doing? So in verse 29, right, his fatherly side surfaces. He asks, is it well with the young man Absalom? Is it shalom with the young man Absalom? And when you notice, when you read the text, whenever David says young man, he's revealing his fatherly love. He's, he's calling out, or rather he's demonstrating his love for his son Absalom. But the first messenger, Ahimaaz, wasn't really sure. I mean, he knew, he knew rather Absalom was dead, but he didn't know exactly how Absalom died. So he kind of makes up, uh, in a way, a story. and says, I was there, I kind of hear something, but I don't really know. And unfortunately, David doesn't get his answer. So David says, Ahimat, go outside. And the Cushite, second messenger, came, comes to David. And the Cushite says in verse 31, he says, Good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. So far, pretty similar words to what the first messenger Ahimaaz said. Then David again, right? The father David again asked in verse 32, Is it well? Is it shalom with the young man Absalom? And the Kushite replies, although, not, although not a very detailed reply of how it happened, but was a, a reply enough for David to know that his son Absalom is dead? So the Kushite says, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. David immediately was in so much pain, so much grief. He retreated. He wept. He cried out in verse 33, Oh my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh Absalom, my son, my son. Now, I think we should pause here for a moment <clears throat> just to feel and empathize for David. We can see clearly here, David the father, he loved his son. He loved Absalom. Albeit a blind love at times, but his love for Absalom, his love for his son was unquestionable. And his response to, towards death or towards the death of his son is a right response. That friends, grief, pain and sorrow is actually appropriate response when someone in our life passes away. Because in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, it tells us that God Himself does not desire the death of the wicked, but that they should turn from His ways and live. It simply means that there's this fatherly heart that God has 
for us as well. That friends, there is no joy in death. That no matter if the person who dies, no matter how sinful, how, how evil the person is, the reason why there is no joy is because there is an eternal reality that our loved ones may face. Right? Especially if they are not Christians. That's why there is no joy because we know death on earth is not the end. There is something far greater that waits the other side. But even if they are Christians, so that's non-Christians, even if they are Christians, on one hand we rejoice that they, are, they have eternal joy, they are with the Lord forevermore, but yet we still feel sad because they are no longer with us anymore. We miss our loved ones as well. Death is a painful experience. It is a result of sin. But if you are a Christian sitting here, the good news is there is joy for the Christian that Christ has defeated death. On the, dead day, on the third day, He rose again. He has conquered death. There is eternal hope for those who are in Christ. So perhaps you are sitting here and you have a loved one who passed away recently. May I encourage that griefing is an appropriate response to such a situation. And I pray that you know, the peace of God you know, will be with you in this very trying time that you find friends, find counsel around you, and find joy uh, as well in Christ as you continue to walk in this very trying time as well. So that's, that's the empathy feel side we have for David. On the other hand, we have to understand that all of this began because David himself did not exercise justice for Tamar, right? Absalom's sister. Tamar was raped by David's own son, Amnon. And because of this, Absalom went into a rage and this is where we are today. You see, David's heart for his own children trumped over his responsibility as a king to exercise justice upon them. This tension between justice and mercy was not able to be held together by David, the king, King David, or David the father. And as we see in David's cry in verse 33, as much as David wanted to die in the place of Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Remember, David said that. We know that doing such a thing would achieve nothing. Because not only, would, not, not only would Absalom not come back from the dead, but Absalom, even if he was still alive, would have to pay for his own sins and his own treasons. Absalom will still have to die. So friends, we need a greater king than David who is able to exercise justice perfectly. We need a greater father's love than David who is able to love without compromising justice. And we need a greater substitute than David himself. Friends, we, the good news is that we already have that. And that his name is Jesus. That Jesus, on that cross, died to pay the sins of the world, the sins of you and I. Right? In Romans 3.26, all of this, this Jesus dying on the cross, 
Is God the Father saying, or God the Father did all this to demonstrate at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus? The good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future. You see, David failed to uphold justice and uphold perfect love at the same time. But our God is both just and justifier that your sins were dealt with by Jesus on the cross and that He, that you can be free, you can be justified because God was just to punish Jesus instead of us. That, my friends, is the gospel that we hold on to, that we have a greater king, that we have a greater love, that we have a greater substitute. So may I urge you, if you are not Christians sitting here today, May I urge you to consider this truth that you are fallen away and an enemy of God but God invites you and calls you to repent and turn to Him. If you are a Christian, may this gospel be an anchor for your soul as you go through the many trying times and seasons of your life. That this gospel will hold on, that you will hold on to this gospel like, like you're holding on to dear life and then you walk through whatever you're walking through uh, with this in mind. And just like Ahimas and just like the Kushite who ran with this victory, this good news of the victory of the kingdom, may we as well run with the good news of the gospel, this greater good news in fact, to the world around us, to the people around us, to the family members that you have at home. May we consider that as well. So back to the story as we end. So after this incident between David and the two messengers, David was mourning, David was grieving. And David's grieving was so bad that the people around him could not help but notice. Right In, in chapter 19, verse 3, it describes the response of the people that the people, imagine you have won the war, you're supposed to be dancing, you're supposed to have victory, a victorious moment, but instead the, the verse describes that they had to steal into the city, like people who have to walk in quietly and walk in discreetly because the king is not happy. The king is sad. His son has died. It was a pretty bad time. But Joab our interesting character again, he comes into the picture. And despite Joab's very questionable things that he has done, he actually gives David, or he gives for the sake of the kingdom, pretty good advice. So in verse 5 of chapter 19, he scolds David essentially. He says, do you know, David, what, your, what message you are sending to your people as you grieve for them? Right? These people, David, have gone to war for you. These people have sacrificed everything. They have saved the things that are precious to you. Yet instead of showing love and gratitude towards these people, you instead are mourning for your son, the enemy, Absalom. And in verse 6, it says, or Absalom says to David, you love those who hate you, i.e. Absalom. You love Absalom who hates you. And you hate those who love you, your Israelite people. Now, a bit of a hyperbole, but it is true. 
David would have been happy if all his army and all his people had perished so much so as long as his own precious son Absalom is alive. So David receives this rebuke from Joab and that was David's wake-up call. Pretty harsh words, I reckon, that David had to listen to. But these are true words nonetheless. So David is rebuked. He had a wake-up call. He's reminded of his duty as a king. And then he went out. He goes out to meet the people. And for the rest of 2 Samuel, as you come back next week, you will continue to see this kingship being played out um, throughout the rest of the book. So in conclusion... There is a real tension between justice and mercy. Right? David experienced it in his life, so do we. We too will experience this tension in our lives. So what can we do today? What shall we do? Now may I offer two encouragements that we can prayerfully consider as we wrestle with this tension ourselves. Firstly, May the Spirit of God remind us that we live in a broken world. That us as Christians on this side of heaven, as long as we live in our flesh and in this world, there is no such thing as fullness of justice. There is no fullness of mercy this side of heaven. And as we meet with different situations where there is that tension, I pray, I don't think that we should expect ourselves to handle all of those situations perfectly all the time. That we're able to show justice and show love and mercy perfectly. The reality is that we can't. Only God can. So for us, in our limitations and in our weakness, may we strive to do our best. In those situations, in whatever, where you're dealing with your kid, where someone has offended you, where you have to make a tough decision, that we prayerfully consider what is the best thing that we can do at a given time. What's the best thing that we can do that glorifies God and honors His Word? We can't do it perfectly, but we we do it uh, well in whatever situation that we are. And lastly, but secondly, in those situations that you are in, may the Spirit of God enable us, enable you to speak the truth in love in those times. You see, in those times where justice and mercy seem that you can't reconcile them, that you can't handle them together, let those opportunities in our weakness be an opportunity where the gospel can be proclaimed to ourselves and to the people that we are dealing with. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is perfect justice and is perfect mercy. That in those times where you are dealing with your children, in those times where you have to forgive someone who has wronged you, where you see injustice happening in this world, may those be opportunities where you can speak the truth in love that you can speak the gospel to yourself and to the person that you're dealing with. And remember, friends, that you are able to show mercy because Christ has first shown you mercy. The reason you are able to love is because Christ first loved you and gave his life for you. That the reason you are able to forgive someone is because Christ has forgiven you. Always remember that. 
and in times where you have to make a tough decision to show justice, to exercise justice, because there is a sin that happened, be reminded that in the gospel, in the good news of Christ, that God himself did not take sin lightly, that he has dealt with sin on the cross. And one fine day, he will, Christ Jesus will come back again to deal with all evil and all sin once and for all, forever. So may we be encouraged uh, by our passage today. And as we go, uh, when you go wherever you go, that you will wrestle with this tension uh, all the days of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word uh, that is sharper than a two-edged sword. Pray on the one hand that we ourselves will be reminded of this gospel of perfect justice and perfect mercy. That as we deal with various situations that come up in our life or as we observe the things that are happening in this world, that we fix our eyes on you as we deal with these situations, as we deal with people in our lives. And for us as well, that remind us that you have, instead of dealing justly with us, instead you have forgiven us because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.